0: Hello, my name is Sir Chapollock, and this is In the News from the Irish Times. Today, how one Irish hospital is coping with the latest surge in COVID cases. Jennifer, you visited the Matter Hospital in Dublin this week, where you spoke to doctors who are right at the forefront of this latest wave of the pandemic. Can you describe for us what the atmosphere in the Matter Hospital is like right now?
1: The mood among the staff that I spoke to was really subdued, quite fearful. Some of them were not just tired and worn out uh, facing into the the fourth wave, but they were really um, quite scared and exhausted.
0: Jennifer O'Connell is a features writer with The Irish Times, and she's been covering how hospitals are coping with the recent increase in COVID cases. And I think the matter, as it was reported
1: recently, went into surge capacity over a week ago now. So, you know, they're, re- they're really beginning to see all of the, the worst fears materialising and all of the things that people like um, Philip Nolan have been warning about coming to pass. And if nothing else changes, we're now on a trajectory uh, towards very large case numbers and very large numbers of people in hospital mm. coinciding with Christmas.
0: Jennifer, this wasn't your first visit to the matter to report on the pandemic, was it? What are the main differences between the first time you visited last year and now? Well, Sir
1: I visited the matter first uh, in June 2020 and, um, you know, had quite a lot of access. I spent a day in there with the video team, with Kathleen Harris, our, our colleague in video. Um, and, you know, we, we went into ICU. We were on a COVID ward. It was the first time I think that I wore a mask. My God. Um, I spoke to patients. We spoke to people in the oncology department. And the atmosphere then, I wouldn't go so far as to say it was actually jubilant, there was there was a feeling that people were tired and they were sort of still a bit shell shocked. But there was a feeling that we were through the worst. And mm. um, they knew that there was still a lot of caseload to come. Like there was a backlog of people who hadn't been coming into the hospital. Um, and even at that stage, there was a, a note of caution. They were thinking, right, we've got through Covid, but now we've got to face all of the other kind of Covid related illnesses, conditions, the things that people hadn't come into hospital for for the past the past few months. Mm-hmm. Um, so they, there was a bit of they were a little bit wary, but generally speaking, the mood, the mood was good and the, the mood was upbeat. It was a very different hospital uh, that I visited on Thursday. I knew, you know, from the outset that it was going to be very different. There were a lot more restrictions on what we were able to do. Even getting in there actually, you know, took quite a few days of a back and forth there was no access to the wards this time, understandably. We met with the consultants in meeting rooms and we didn't speak to any of the nursing staff. And when I asked them about what the mood was like on their wards, they said that. They said, look, you know, we're very resilient um, and people will dig deep and, and they'll find it in themselves again to do what they need to do. But, you know, at, at this point, we've we've we all feel like there's very little left in the tank. And yet the worst is probably to come.
0: It really is a very, a very grim picture. And and one of the doctors you spoke to, Doctor Sinead McCardle, she spoke to you about how she's personally feeling coming into work each day, feeling that pressure in the rise of cases. Can you tell me a little bit about what she said about how she's coping?
1: Yeah, so we met Sinead at um just after nine o'clock in the morning and she had just arrived in to start her shift. Have you just come off a of shift? Are you starting No, no, no. Or? I'm starting today. Yeah. 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 So
2: what what time will you be here until? I will be here till half six or half six, seven.
1: And she's eight and a half months pregnant. So she's um, very unmistakable when, when she rocks up. She's going to spend most of her day that day. Um, she was going to be in the emergency department with two other consultants, one of whom was going to be in this tent uh, outside the matter that anybody who's driven past the matter will, will have seen or anybody who's had to present in the emergency department. It's literally a tent. I mean, I hadn't seen it the last time I was there. It's a huge marquee and that'll be full of patients all day. Yeah.
2: Which we thought would be... Uh short term scenario, but it's now been there. It will be our second winter in in a tent. Um,
1: So one of the consultants, um, and it wasn't going to be Sinead that day, it was going to be one of her colleagues, will stand in that tent in the freezing cold, uh, dealing with patients and trying to streamline them into different pathways. So they'll be trying to figure out who has COVID symptoms, who's coming in knowing that they have COVID. And that's about half of the people presenting to to the ED at the moment. And then the third group of patients are the people who really don't need to be there. And so Sinead or one of her colleagues, their their job that day was going to be largely trying to figure out, do you really need to be here? Um, And if people want to come in, do they know that they're facing a 10 or a 12 or 15 hour wait? Mm. Um, And do they know that they're at risk of contracting COVID if they come in?
2: Like there was a gentleman I saw the other day who had been in a road traffic accident three weeks ago and he was still sore and he mm. he had he thought it would just pass uh, and, and it didn't, he had aches and pains. I'm not saying he didn't need to see a doctor, but he didn't need to be in an emergency mm. department and put himself out So here.
1: that's what she was facing into. And, you know, it, it was really striking speaking to her um, how frightened the staff are. And I don't think that's too strong a word. You know, she, she said to me, I'm, I'm scared now. And I think she's as scared as she has been at any point uh, since all of this started. Part of it is uh, the sheer workload that they're seeing. The numbers presenting to the emergency department have gone through the roof over the last couple of weeks.
2: And how many patients are you seeing per day on average now? Up to 250 patients a day. Uh, we're, we think we might surpass 90,000 ED presentations this year. Um, last year, we had dropped a little bit to 74,000. Mm-hmm. But generally, we were kind of at about the 80,000 mark. So we're going to see an extra 10,000 presentations wow. or more this year.
1: Partly, that's a result of, of COVID and, and partly that's just winter time. That's just people turning up with all of those kind of things that they would normally come in with.
0: You mentioned that one of Dr McArdle's duties will be finding out who's the COVID patient, who's not the COVID patient. But what did she tell you about the difference in symptoms between patients who are arriving who are vaccinated against COVID and those who are not? Are the people without vaccination getting a lot sicker?
1: So what was really striking about that was that she said they will turn up um, and they will present initially looking and, and s- seeming somewhat similar. They'll be complaining about the same kind of symptoms, um, and her first question is, are you vaccinated? And she said to me, if you tell me that you're you're COVID positive and you're vaccinated.
2: I'm not as worried about you as this person who says I've just not had a positive test and I'm unvaccinated because they get sick. They are sicker. Mm. They are the patients that are more likely to need critical care and ICU intervention.
1: There was no equivocation. It was absolutely the case. So she said initially the presentation will be kind of cough and cold and respiratory symptoms. And if you're vaccinated most of the time, unless you have a serious illness, the ED department will be asking you to go back home, take paracetamol, take plenty of fluids and rest. And in a, in a few days, you'll feel better. If you are unvaccinated, you're probably going to be on oxygen very quickly within coming
2: in. Initially starts off with something like nasal prongs where they put the little oxygen tubes. Sometimes they their oxygen saturations. You're looking at them and you're like moving the, the probe to a different spot to their earlobe, checking if their hands are cold, saying really is their oxygen levels really that low? It shouldn't be.
1: And then then after that, they'll very often be put on um, on a mask, a non-invasive mask, where they'll get a very high flow of oxygen coming into them. And some of them get better and begin to recover at that point, but some of them don't, and they end up going upstairs to the ICU department. And if they get ventilated in ICU, then regardless of how the illness progresses, they're going to be very sick for a long time. They may be in ICU for about ten days. That seems to be about the average. And when they recover, when they come out of ICU, if they recover. They have to learn to do everything again. Your lungs have to learn how to operate again. And she described to me seeing 28-year-olds sort of sitting up in bed and trying to eat and and struggling to hold a a fork and a plate because they're just so exhausted from COVID.
2: If the unvaccinated people could see how sick young people are getting, you know, and not people with massive, you know, underlying health concerns in hospital, I don't know, it would... It, it, it would really open up there if they, if you could, if you could see how sick people can yeah. get when they're unvaccinated.
1: And even while I was there, I was speaking to ICU consultant Dr. Colman O'Loughlin, and just before he came into the room to speak to me, he'd already had two calls from two different hospitals elsewhere in the country, looking to see if they, if a bed could be made available for young people who are unvaccinated
0: in their thirties who now need ICU care. So it was really sobering. And I want to come back to Colman O'Loughlin in a minute, but. As you've already mentioned, Dr. Sinead McCardle, she's actually pregnant herself, eight and a half months pregnant. Is she not nervous about working at this time when there's still a risk of contracting COVID when she's expecting a child?
1: So funny enough, this is actually Sinead's uh, second time working while pregnant. She had a, um, her son 15 months ago. So she's had you know both experiences. She's worked in the ED while she was pregnant and unvaccinated. And now she's working in the ED while she's pregnant and vaccinated. And she said to me um, that the day that she was offered vaccination was the happiest that she's had in mm. a really long time. Um, she... Really wanted to do the interview, I think, because she really wanted to get the message out to people that vaccination is very safe for for pregnant women. And she said I, I asked her that question about whether she'd been fearful, particularly in the early days of the pandemic. And she said, yeah, I ha- she had been fearful.
2: But look, you put on your PPE and you do the best thing you can. And obviously in the job I have, I'm an emergency consultant. I just felt I couldn't walk away. I just felt I, I couldn't have walked away when a pandemic came on. It just didn't sit right with me. I, she just never questioned it. She always just thought this is
1: where I need to be. So she's going to work, I think, for another two weeks when she'll be 38 weeks pregnant, all going well,
0: and then uh, she'll take maternity leave. So NEFET, the National Public Health Emergency Team, they have shared several different scenarios for how the next few weeks might play out with the COVID case numbers and hospitalizations. Jennifer, can you tell us what is the best case scenario And what is the worst case scenario at this point? So
1: NEFET's Chief Epidemiological Advisor, Philip Nolan, shared those scenarios and, and he published them on Twitter, which was really interesting to see uh, in the middle of last week. So he spoke about an optimistic scenario um, which would see in December about 1000 people in hospital and 200 people in, in critical care. Um, the pessimistic scenario would see about 2000 people in hospital and at least 400 requiring critical care. Okay. Um, and he said those people couldn't all be cared for an ICU. Many would receive advanced respiratory support on wards and, and in high dependency units. Now, Coleman O'Loughlin, Dr Coleman O'Loughlin in the ICU in the matter, had quite a strong reaction to those uh, predictions from Dr Philip Nolan. And he said, even the language around optimistic scenarios makes me nervous. He said, there isn't an optimistic scenario. There's only pessimistic and carnage. And we're currently in pessimistic. And if things don't change, we're facing into carnage.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask, could hospitals buckle? under this latest wave how serious does dr coleman O'Loughlin, who's the matter's head of the icu how serious does he see this getting it's hard to
1: overstate how seriously he's taking this he said even if we come close to dr philip nolan's predictions we're close to the the collapse of the health service Um, and i think that's the reason why the matter agreed to allow me in this week because they Mm. just feel that the message is not getting out to people that they don't understand that our actions in the next few weeks will determine whether or not we have a functioning health service. He spoke about, you know, there's been a lot of talk about up to 400 or up to 500 people may require ICU if, if things go wrong or things go worse. But he said to me, that's false language. There's only 300 ICU beds in the country. So if 500 people require ICU, only 300 people will get what we know to be ICU they may be able to find beds for more people. I mean, they will. Nobody will be turned away and nobody won't get a bed, but they won't get the full care that you'd expect in ICU. Um, And that's not just down to the number of beds. That's down to staffing for a start. I mean, you know, a lot of the nursing staff are um, understandably really fearful of being redeployed to ICU. Mm. So those who haven't been trained in ICU for obvious reasons don't want to go to ICU. They don't want that responsibility. And the other issue is that, you know, you can have a bed and you can have an ICU nurse, but if you don't have somewhere to plug in
0: an oxygen tank, then it's not an ICU bed. Are doctors having to decide at this point who gets an ICU bed and who doesn't? And if they are How are they making that decision? So when I was in the matter last
1: Thursday, that that hadn't happened um, yet. That's being avoided generally by hospitals mo- moving patients around. So if somebody needs an ICU bed and they don't have an ICU bed, there's still enough capacity in the system that they can move them. Um, and Dr. Lachlan, as I mentioned earlier on, was getting calls from other hospitals while I was with him um, and even before I'd come in to see if, if there were spare beds in, in the matter. But I, I asked him about, you know, when I was last there in, in June in 2020, There was a lot of talk from everybody I spoke to about Lombardy and how all of the the healthcare staff, the doctors and the nurses in the hospital had sort of seen the video footage coming from Lombardy and they had thought, oh, God, we can't go there. Like, we can't let this happen. Um, And it it, it was absolutely terrifying. So I said to me, you know, when, when we last spoke, we spoke a lot about Lombardy. And do you feel that that's coming, that that's where Ireland is going to be? And he said, yeah, he's thinking, you know, as he described them, really, really, really terrible questions about how you decide who will get the bed if there aren't enough beds. Is it COVID? Is, is it people with COVID or non-COVID? Is, is it vaccinated or unvaccinated? And I said, are you really thinking that way? And he said, I think about it all the time. There's certainly a discussion going on amongst people, um, and he was referring to other people in in healthcare and in ICU, about how do you decide when ICU is full, what kind of patient gets a bed? And as of yet, there isn't an answer to that question. These conversations are going to have to be had, though, in the next few weeks. He reckons it'll come down to clinical need and, and who's most likely to benefit.
0: I want to ask you a bit more about people who are still unvaccinated and who are sceptical about the vaccine. Uh, CSO figures that were released in October showed that large numbers of Central and Eastern Europeans who live here in Ireland remain reluctant to get vaccinated against COVID. Do we know whether any of these people are ending up in hospital and what kind of efforts are being made both by the health service and the government to reassure them that the vaccine is safe and necessary? The reality
1: is that a lot of the people who are ending up in ICU are, Dr O'Loughlin told me, from countries where English isn't their first language. And a lot of them are from Eastern European countries. So there are 34 critical care beds um, in the matter hospital. And in those at the moment, half are people who have COVID and half are people who don't have COVID. Now, of those 17 who are in ICU uh, with COVID, half are vaccinated and half are unvaccinated. Of the vaccinated patients who are ending up in ICU they're typically people whose immune systems are already very, very compromised um, and they have a major illness and that means that the vaccination is not working for them in the way that it's working for somebody healthier. And then the other half of the patients in in ICU are unvaccinated and they're also incredibly vulnerable and some of them are are very young, Uh, some of them are pregnant women um, and they're ending up in ICU and they're ending up, some of them extremely, extremely sick. Um, And a lot of them are from countries where English isn't their first language so um, Dr O'Loughlin and I spoke about this and obviously it's a difficult thing to talk about because you don't want to stereotype you know entire groups of people but he he suggested that it's partly a language issue uh, but it's also a cultural position in some minority groups where he feels that they're distrustful of, of anything that's sponsored by the state and he thinks that we need a much stronger communication effort to reach those people. We need we need to reach them in their own language, um, but we also need to address those very specific concerns. And, and, you know, as he said to me, the rates of vaccination in some parts of Eastern Europe are quite low. Romania is about 36% of the population is vaccinated. And he said we're seeing a similar ratio of vaccination amongst the Eastern European population here. So there's clearly um, a gap in the communication and there's clearly a concerted effort needed to get um, the kind of information
0: that I suppose explains the benefits of vaccination. I want to ask you, Jennifer, about the care that's available for people who do not have COVID in the hospital. So cancer patients, for example. We heard a lot in 2020 about how their healthcare needs were being somewhat pushed aside in favour of working with COVID patients. But is that still happening? Uh, You spoke to Professor John McCaffrey, who's from the Matters Oncology Unit, about how some cancer patients aren't being seen until dangerously late stage in their illness. Is that right? That's right. So I I spoke to, as you
1: said, Professor John McCaffrey um, in the oncology unit in in the matter. And he said, you know, they're sort of facing a double whammy now because they're seeing the after effects of the past 20 months and they're seeing all of the things that we were concerned about um, and all of the things that when I visited the matter last in June 2020, everybody was predicting would happen, which was that, people would not go to their GPs with a niggling concern um, or that they wouldn't be able to get an appointment. You know, and he was really reluctant to, to sort of phrase this in a way that might be seen to suggest that, you know, people were to blame for the state that they've ended up in. But the reality is um, that he's seeing a big increase in numbers of, of people who have advanced disease now.
2: So there's far more of that. Everything that people are, are predicting we're seeing, at least anecdotally, most of the patients I'd see today are people who last year or two years ago we wouldn't have had to treat them. You know, We would have been saying, you've been cured with surgery, you just need surveillance. Whereas now they may have advanced disease and we have to do things to try and maybe shrink their tumour to get them back to a surgical cure.
1: So, you know, he said to take the, the example of testicular cancer, um, they saw very, very little testicular cancer last year. But obviously, people were still getting testicular cancer Um, and this year they've had maybe double the normal number of testicular cancers and they all need chemotherapy, which is really unusual. Normally, testicular cancer is, is treatable with surgery alone. So he, he said to me, it's a cancer pandemic. Um, and I, I sort of stopped. He said something like um, the HSE has given us funding for this cancer pandemic. And I, I had to question that. I said, would you use the words cancer pandemic? And he said, that's that's what it's been called. And it's also been described as a tsunami of cancers. And Professor John McCaffrey is not a man who's given to hyperbole. So I was really kind of taken aback by that. He said, it's, it's what we feared. And I don't think we've come near the peak of it yet. And he said, you know, this isn't going to be a one year kind of catch up with the backlog. This is going to be with us
0: for five to ten years. And what about people like Dr. McArdle who are coming into work every day, but at the same time watching the rest of the country live their lives almost as if we lived them prior to the pandemic? So going out in the evenings, meeting friends, going to nightclubs, it must be quite dispiriting for them.
1: Yeah, I think all of the the doctors that I spoke to are in this really strange position in that they're living the reality of the pandemic in the hospital, and then they're going home, uh, and they're facing all the same restrictions that we're facing. So, you know, at the moment that's not too many restrictions, but they're they're you know kind of looking ahead and imagining that we we may end up there in another lockdown. Dr. McCardle described it as, she, you know, she lives near to the
2: Aviva Stadium and she was going home
1: after the Ireland uh, rugby match recently.
2: There was no sense of COVID. There was people on the street, like the street was full. I was trying to get home and it took an hour for me in the tra- between the traffic, between the people. On the street.
1: And she just said she found it, that disconnect between what she had just gone through in a shift in the hospital um, and the way that people
2: were behaving out in the streets. Kind of hard to understand. I, I just, I don't even know how they felt comfortable. I suppose that like... You know, if someone even comes up and goes to shake your hand now, sometimes I'm I'm, I'm a little bit, you know, I, I don't. That's not what I do anymore. So I don't know how. I personally don't know how you could feel comfortable in that setting.
1: Um, I think there was a real sense, you know, when I said to I said to everybody that I spoke to, you know, what do you say to people who? are sick of this, who've had enough, who are frustrated, who don't want to hear any You know, and I, I think all of the research shows that lately, you know, from the ESRI and other bodies, that people have kind of tuned out a little bit. They don't want to hear the bad news. Um, and they said, you know, we're sick of it, too. We, we would love to tune out, from, but we can't. You
2: know, it's here and it's coming. From a personal point of view, am I tired of it as well? Absolutely. But I can still see. I still come to work, and I still see what's happening in the hospitals. And I think other people aren't seeing it. We're not. And
1: Dr. McCardle put it to me, you know, really well. She sort of said, in in the beginning, they weren't as afraid because they felt that the Irish people had their back and had the health
2: services back. And she said they stayed at home, they washed, washed their her. hands, wore their masks, stayed two meters apart, stayed within their five k and things. They fixed Ireland. They helped us. That- she
1: said I might have, you know, learned how to use some of the new machinery that came into the hospital. But they kept us safe. It was a real case of it was kind of Ireland's call. And she said, now I'm scared because that's going
2: away. And I understand people are tired and they're fatigued and they're just fed up with it all. But it's it's just getting worse and worse. And we will, the deaths will start to increase. And I'm, I'm scared now because every day we are literally teetering on the edge, the health service. And if it just takes an extra... 500 cases in the community, a thousand million cases, and we're going to tip over the other side and we're not going to be able to manage and people will die.
1: And one of the things that's making her afraid is that she just doesn't feel that the Irish public understands or maybe they don't care. Maybe they feel like I'm vaccinated. I'm invincible. It's not my problem. But you know what? It's everybody's problem. If we're in a, God forbid, in a car accident or, you know, you have a child or, or a relative who needs intensive care, they may not be able to get the same kind of care that they would otherwise have got.
0: What do the doctors you spoke with feel needs to happen now to stem this rise in cases? Would reimposing a few more restrictions be enough or is another lockdown ahead of Christmas just inevitable at this point?
1: So I asked uh, Dr O'Loughlin and I know from speaking to him the last time that I interviewed him um, off mic, we had quite a long conversation about the impact that the lockdowns had had on our children and the lack of schooling and the fact that they couldn't attend sporting events. And we spoke about the impact that it had on people who lived alone um, and isolated people. So I know that he's not somebody that would be calling for lockdown likely and he doesn't want it. And he said, you know, nobody wants it, least of all me. But I can't see any way that we're going to be able to avoid it because of the situation that the, that the hospital is in. So, you know, from his point of view, the signs of hope are that there are, there are booster vaccines. Um, he would love to see them rolled out faster. He can't understand why they're sitting in fridges and not going into people's arms. There are nasal vaccines that may be coming down the tracks that will be, he hopes, more effective at preventing transmission because they go into the nose and they may be able to fight the virus where it replicates most. Um, There are antiretroviral drugs. But I suppose the biggest hope is that the public may yet pull this back, that we might actually see the kind of change of behaviour that's needed to stop those numbers tipping over and to
0: stop more people getting sick. Jennifer, how are you feeling after spending this day in the matter? As you said, you were just speaking to doctors. You weren't at the coalface like them, but you you were in there over a year ago, a year and a half ago. You're back in again now. We all hoped that the world of lockdowns was behind us. It appears that it's not. What's your takeaway from this week?
1: To be honest, I, I, I feel kind of depressed. I, I've, you know, I found it quite grim when I visited the first time in in June. Um, Last year, I came home and I was sort of, I was all hyped up and I stripped off every item of clothing in the whole of the house and I went straight into the shower and I boil washed everything. And, you know, like I said, it was the first time I'd worn a mask and it was still all kind of novel and, and terrifying. So I didn't have that same sense of being personally vulnerable. And in fact, I came away from it feeling less personally vulnerable as somebody who is fully uh, vaccinated, maybe. But I also felt really scared because I think actually this is the worst phase that we've been in, having been in the hospital and having spoken to the doctors about what's happening. You know, this isn't sort of some abstract concept now or an abstract argument that somebody like Paul Reid might be making about our need to protect the health system. The health system is in danger of collapsing if those numbers keep growing. And, you know, the doctors in the hospital feel that they're sort of powerless to do anything about it. And all they can do is try and get that message out. So I've certainly it's dramatically changed my perspective on levels of activity that I'm going to be doing over the next few weeks and I'm not a big you know party animal anyway I haven't been doing that much to be quite honest with you but I went into the office afterwards and even though there was only like two other people in the entire Irish Times building um, I wore my mask and I stayed away from other people Um, and I was just suddenly really conscious again of how vulnerable we are because as we know and as we've heard over and over Ireland has one of the lowest ICU capacities in any OECD country I think only Mexico and New Zealand are behind us so a country like Germany has um, 33 ICU beds for every 100,000 people. Um, and the average in the OECD countries is 12. And I believe Ireland has five.
0: Jennifer, thanks so much for your time. No problems, Erica. Thank you. That's all for today. You can read Jennifer O'Connell's full report from The Matter Hospital on irishtimes.com. In the news, we'll be back on Wednesday.